From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. Welcome, Cindy and Steve. Thank you. Good to be with you. Here are the issues. President Joe Biden says he will cancel up to $10,000 in student loan debt for each federal borrower earning less than $125,000 annually, holding true to a campaign promise and relieving millions of their student debt burdens. Former President Donald Trump's resistance to turning over what now appears to be a larger volume of documents than previously known could strengthen a potential case from the Justice Department against him. A letter released by the National Archives on Tuesday indicates an initial batch of 15 boxes of documents taken from Mar-a-Lago in January included 100 classified documents totaling 700 pages. The primaries and special elections in New York and Florida were among the last to take place before the country enters the sprint toward the general election, offering some final clues about the political landscape heading into November. Tuesday's primary was a show of force for the Democratic Party establishment, even amid signs that voters in both parties are not happy with their political leaders. Ukraine marked a tense Independence Day anniversary as it coincided with marking the sixth month of Russia's invasion. President Biden marked Ukraine's Independence Day with $3 billion in security assistance, Washington's largest aid package since Russia's invasion. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Steve, President Biden has announced relief for millions of Americans from a chunk of their student loan debt, as well as extending student loan payments through December 31st. Republican lawmakers say this is not a good idea due to the cost it would have on taxpayers. What are the political risks involved with this? Well, you can't ignore the timeliness of Biden's follow-through on this campaign promise to reduce or eliminate some student debt. It comes as 2022 midterm election season ramps up. Both Republicans and Democrats are vying for the votes of a younger generation of college-educated voters, 43 million of them who borrowed money for Congress. It is mostly politics. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said it was a slap in the face to those families who saved money to send their kids to college and pay for it themselves, as well as those students who had to work through college in order to pay for their bills, as well as those students who went into military service in order to come out of college debt-free. Even some Democrats, especially those running in battleground states, they're critical of the move. Their point is many people who did not go to college or worked and saved to pay their tuition, those people are going to be paying taxes for the people who are getting their debt forgiven. So there's lots of politics, as well as other Democrats who say Biden didn't go far enough, that $10,000 of debt forgiveness isn't enough. Elizabeth Warren and several other Democrats who ran against Biden in 2020 who were running on the platform of let's eliminate all student debt. So there's a lot of politics at play here. How this turns out, we'll eventually see in November, but the administration now is trying to bat down some of the criticism that 
This is going to add to inflation. As you mentioned earlier, there are a lot of different political angles being played here, as well as one last one, that this move by Biden may be challenged in court, whether he exceeded the authority that he had under the laws that allow him and the education department to forgive these loans. So there's still a lot that is in play here before this becomes final. I know that many former students out there who took out loans who are very thankful that at least 10,000 or in some cases 20,000 of their debt will be forgiven. Kim, I just wanted to pick up on that last point that I am hearing from a lot of people. They just really feel like just such a weight has been taken off of them from this. And just for our international listeners, the price to get an undergraduate degree in the United States now costs about an average of around $28,000 a year. So we're talking for many, many families. This is a huge sacrifice and it's out of reach for a lot of families. I was actually surprised at how almost universally positive the reaction was from Democrats with progressives, such as uh, Steve mentioned, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who was a big force behind this issue, saying this is one of the biggest acts of consumer debt relief in American history and will go directly to help hardworking people and families who can't just write a big check for university. So, of course, as Steve said, you know, most Republicans said that this is astonishingly unfair and saying that, you know, some families do military service or other ways to get the tuition reduced. You know, we've got the midterms coming up in November. This certainly could help Democrats with younger voters. All this aside, there still isn't the answer to the big issue, which is why does college cost so much, especially with this debt forgiveness? Very little has been done to try to find those ways to bring those college costs down or at least keep them from going up even more. And there are many who will point to the federal student loan program as a reason why college costs go up, because borrowing for college has become so easy and the debt has accumulated and colleges are raising tuition because people can borrow the money in order to afford the tuition. You all raised some really excellent points on that issue. In our next topic, lawyers for former U.S. President Donald Trump have asked a federal court to temporarily block the FBI from reviewing documents recovered from his Florida estate until a special master can be appointed. Meanwhile, Trump's resistance to turning over what now appears to be a larger volume of documents than previously known could strengthen a potential case from the Justice Department against him. What does this mean for Trump and the DOJ at this point? It means still a standoff between the two of them, although we're inching towards some sort of head here. There's been new reporting from The Washington Post that shows the situation has been building since before Trump left office. There's a newly revealed email from May 2021, the chief lawyer for the National Archives sent to Trump's lawyers, indicating that there was concern about boxes of documents that were kept in the White House residence where the president and his family live. These documents were known to have been in the residence, and there was concern about them moving out of the residence back in January of 2021. 
there's a U.S. law that was passed in the 1970s that considers all documents and presidential records to be property of the government, not the president who occupies the office. Right now, it looks like we're moving toward the possibility that the president and perhaps some of his lawyers might be indicted on charges that they had documents, took them out of the White House, took them out of a secure place where they can be seen. Those are all federal crimes. This has become a case where there is a showdown. It appears to be a showdown between ex-President Trump and the current attorney general over whether or not the attorney general is going to enforce the law and get those documents back. Whether or not it goes to court, whether or not the president is prosecuted on this, we're still going to have to wait and see. It does look like there is going to be some sort of showdown, some sort of legal showdown coming in the next few weeks as all kinds of different deadlines for the president and for the Department of Justice to file briefs and to file paperwork in court as this case keeps going on down the road. As Steve mentioned, the National Archives noticed very early on that there were documents missing. And one of the things that may have tipped them off is that former President Trump had often bragged about the wonderful letters that he had received from the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, calling them love letters. And that's one of the things that they noticed that was missing. Or there was a lot of attention about it was a hurricane map. And former President Trump had used a Sharpie to change the curve of that. And that was also missing. So these are relatively harmless things. But officials in the national security community are just expressing so much shock and concern about the sheer volume of classified material that was found. And I think, as Steve said, if this should come to a criminal case, that would be something that would likely have an impact on jurors, that if there's that many classified documents and top secret documents, it's not just an accident that a few documents got mixed in with others. And as Steve said, the people who deal with these kind of documents, they say that they are just dumbfounded at the recklessness. Now we know that some of these documents were not even in a secure storage facility or whatever, but were just basically lying around at Mar-a-Lago. And there's reporting that some of these documents contained some of the deepest and the biggest secrets that the United States has. What they are, we're not sure. We have heard reports that some of them involve nuclear weapons and nuclear status as far as those weapons are concerned. There's also been reporting that some of these documents could have named informants, the identities of other people who are involved in not only keeping these secrets, but acquiring these secrets. There's a lot there that we don't know that if we go to trial, we might know some of them. But because a lot of this is classified, we may never know the kind of documents and classified information that the president took from the White House to his uh, residence in Florida. Yes, and I guess why did he take them to his house in Florida? Why did he take them to his house in Florida? That means trying to get into the mind of Donald Trump, which (laughs) so many people have tried to do. And there's all kinds of speculation as to why he took them. The bottom line is he wasn't supposed to take them. That's where the law is going to come into play 
whether or not there's a good reason or not is kind of irrelevant because the law says these documents belong to the United States of America and need to be given to the National Archives for storage and for the proper handling of it. One of the other things that we're seeing is politically and financially, this is a windfall for Trump. He's had some of his best fundraising since leaving the White House over his outrage over the search. And there's some polling recently that shows he's getting a boost politically. There's an NBC News poll last week that showed 41% of Republicans say they support Trump more than the party itself. And that's seven points up from a similar poll in June. So there's that kind of momentum that Trump politically is gaining as he decides whether or not he's going to run for president again in 2024. The same NBC News poll from last week shows 57% of Americans believe the investigations into Trump should continue. So we're going to see this political dynamic play out over the next several weeks as well over these documents. And I think that's an excellent question that you raise, why former President Trump took so many documents and also sort of how, I mean, these documents have to be brought to him, I would suppose, by people in the intelligence community. And, you know, they must have noticed that he was hoarding them. I mean, they should have been brought back by someone else, I'm guessing, to a secure facility. So how long has this been going on? We are hearing that even when Trump was in the White House, he would take classified documents up to his private residence on a regular basis. And were people in the intelligence community basically turning a blind eye to this and not reporting this up the chain? Or I'm just wondering, I don't think that former President Trump could have acted alone in this. And I think that we're just sort of at the tip of the iceberg as to what all was involved in this. Some of his former aides are saying that when they showed him documents and he asked, can I keep this? Can I take this? And he would take it and trying to get those documents back was an ordeal for many of these aides who have come out either anonymously or actually on the record to say that the president did not handle these classified documents very well. Very interesting. And you all really covered that topic really well. And as more information is revealed, we will also continue to stay on top of that. Time now for a quick break, and when we come back, we'll look at what the latest U.S. primaries could mean for midterm elections. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voaafrica.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. Well, the primaries and special elections in Florida and New York were among the last to take place before the country enters the sprint toward the general election. Voters in New York, for example, picked their representatives for two vacant House seats on Tuesday, while Florida Democrats chose their nominee to take on Governor Ron DeSantis this fall. Political analysts say the Democratic choice representative Charlie Crist himself, a former Republican governor of Florida, is a safe choice for Democrats in looking ahead to November. So are Democrats playing it safe? 
That's a really good question as to whether or not that's the case. In Florida, you mentioned Charlie Crist. He was the former governor. He was also the former attorney general. And all of those times when he was the Florida governor, he was a Republican. He switched over to become a Democrat and ran for Congress and was successful. He became a congressman. And now he is still a Democrat and is going to challenge the Florida governor for that job in November. Safe is an interesting question. I think that Democrats see the need to be able to try to challenge the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, who is considered one of the prime Republicans who would run for president in 2024, whether or not Donald Trump runs for president or not. Democrats see the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, as someone who, if they can knock off in 2022 in the governor's race in Florida, that would severely damage him in 2024. Whether or not Chris is a safe choice or not, we'll have to see. But polling shows DeSantis is ahead of Chris or the other candidate who is trying to be the Democratic candidate. We're going to have to see how this all plays out, how this affects the 2022 midterm elections. Political history shows that the party that wins the White House usually loses seats in Congress in the following election, which means Democrats are supposed to, according to history, supposed to lose seats in the 2020 midterm elections this November. But so far in five special elections for Congress to fill vacancies, Democrats have fared better than expected and political insiders are pointing to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn a woman's right to an abortion. And that has Democrats fired up. So far we're seeing Democrats, they haven't won all of these special elections, but they've done better than they were expected to do. As Steve said, we had another example of that on Tuesday with Democrat Pat Ryan winning a special election in a sort of evenly divided upstate New York House district. And yeah, he was a veteran, but he ran very much on the issue of reproductive rights and saying that these are basic rights of women, which have been taken away with the recent Supreme Court Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So I think this is something that is definitely motivating Democratic voters. And I've seen some political observers also starting to point to a fact that perhaps the Republican base and Trump supporters are not quite as motivated as they have been in the past. That's just sort of early watching to that. And I guess we will find out in November whether that's true or not. And I think it's too early to tell. And with all these investigations into former President Trump, depending on what happens between now and November. And if we find out more about possible, he is being investigated under the Espionage Act, what kind of impact that will have. While the investigations into Trump has helped his poll numbers, it is also firing up Democrats along with the abortion ruling. So we're going to see whether or not history is overturned in the 2022 November elections and whether the Democrats can overcome the historical political trends and keep the House and the Senate. And our final topic, as Ukraine marked its Independence Day from the Soviet Union, the day also coincided with the six-month invasion of Russia. So, Cindy, what is the situation now? 
It was a somber day for Ukrainians, but yet defiant with Ukrainian President Zelensky vowing to fight on until the end. And he asked, you know, what's the end for us? We used to say peace, but now we say victory, he said, because he said we won't negotiate with terrorists, referring to what many in Ukraine see as the blatant targeting of civilians. And we saw another example of that on the anniversary day with a train being hit. But the U.S. marked the day by announcing another almost $3 billion package of military aid with President Biden saying this is demonstrating that America is in it for the long term. Russian President Vladimir Putin cannot think that the U.S. or that the West is going to get fatigued and is going to stop supporting Ukraine. The U.S. will keep supporting Ukraine as long as necessary. And it seems like the American people back that position. A new poll by Reuters in Ipsos in mid-August showed 53% of Americans support backing Ukraine until all Russian forces are withdrawn. Only 18% oppose that position. And the support is somewhat bipartisan, 66% of Democrats and 51% of Republicans surveys say they back Ukraine until all Russian forces are withdrawn. So Biden has the backing of of the American people to support that position of not just backing Ukraine, but now sending another almost $3 billion in military aid. Also, Cindy, I wanted to ask about the situation regarding the nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Yes, that's a good point, Kim. And the United Nations said that this is a point of of maximum uh, danger for the world with this power plant. It has been under Russian control since March, and we see that there were a lot of fears that something was going to happen, perhaps in connection with the anniversary, that Russia is telling you know its staffers there not to go, and Ukrainians were doing emergency exercises, worried about the possibility of an accident, and VOA was able to speak with the U.S. Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, and she said the U.S. very strongly supports demilitarization of the area. We've had like Russian artillery firing around the nuclear plant and saying this is outrageous. We don't want to have any kind of military action around the nuclear plant and calling on Russia to allow the international agencies to get in there and then see what's going on. That seems like a very tense situation that we will just have to continue to follow. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. And Cindy, what is weighing on your mind? Well, the topic with this debt forgiveness that President Biden announced and all sort of the storm of arguments on both sides with some saying this is great and others saying this is unfair. It just sort of got me thinking on a personal level about how in the U.S. we do have free public education from kindergarten to the 12th grade. And why do we cut it off then? And why do we not give more help to people who want to attend university or for that matter, vocational training? And I just think that my personal opinion is that we all benefit from an educated force of young people. As Steve pointed out, it's a bigger issue because between 1980 and 2020, the average price of tuition for an undergraduate degree increased by 169%. So that might be something that, as Steve indicated, is going to take a bigger fix. 
Similarly, that's weighing on my mind as well, because my daughters are headed back to college. I've got one going off back to grad school, another to her third year of four years of college. Luckily, the grad school daughter was able to get an assistantship job, which gratefully will pay for her tuition. But she's going to have to work 20 hours a week, along with her going to classes and an internship. And the younger one was able to get some grants that knocked her tuition bill down to $30,000, which was 10 times the tuition I had to pay for college 50 years ago. It was too expensive back then as well. So yeah, the cost of college is really weighing on my mind this week. Very good. And we will end the show on those thoughts. I'd like to thank my panelists, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. Be sure to visit our website at voaafrica.com for all of your current affairs shows and much more. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.